Morning. Happy Independence Day weekend. So I hope you all are going to take in some fireworks or something. I mean, you'll hear them. I started hearing them this weekend already. My dogs are, or my dog was barking at different points. And, uh, but it's going to be a fun weekend. And we're continuing on in this message series looking at some of the relationship killers that the Bible identifies that we default to and that we struggle with. So we're, we're calling this series Relationships at the Box Office because so many of these relationship killers are what we see on the big screen. And so we're using some of the major summer box office hits as a launching pad to look at relationship killers in the Bible. And so this is not, this list of movies that we're kind of springing from is not it's not necessarily like a must-see list, so we're not saying, you've got to see all these movies. What we're really using is taking them and springing from them and launching into some of the messages that are coming at us through the movies. And so, so far we've looked at Pride, and it the, the movie that we kind of sprung from was X-Men Apocalypse, where you have like a godlike character who, who thinks he's a god and a very proud individual. So we, we just began looking at the relationship killer and the struggle that we face that we know as Pride. A couple of weeks ago, Bruce looked at deception, uh, springing from the movie Now You See Me Too, and, and how we have a tendency to isolate ourselves and withdraw ourselves from people, and even when we, when we step into sin, how we withdraw further from others and God, and Bruce encouraged us through 1 John to step into the light, step out of darkness and into light, and that helps us with uh, the deception tendency. Uh, last week, Cody looked at some inadequate communication patterns that we struggle with. Just how we, we struggle to get messages from, from, from us to other people. Sometimes it gets lost in translation. Sometimes we do and say things that, that make communication very, very difficult. And so, uh, Cody gave some help from the scripture in that area. And so, all of those messages are on the web. This week, we're taking a look at what happens in a movie when you use manipulation. Or what happens in real life when you use manipulation. What does it feel like to be manipulated? Uh, what do, and then how, how does that look? Because this is another relationship killer that shows up in our lives. Certainly it's addressed in the Bible. And so we're going to take a look at that. And it shows up as the theme in the movie, The Legend of Tarzan. And so that's, it just came out this week, The Legend of Tarzan. I, I love the Tarzan story. Uh, the This character was introduced just over a hundred years ago, in 1912, here's a, a picture of the original book. Edgar Rice Burroughs, in 1912, he wrote Tarzan of the Apes. And so this is where the character was introduced. There were about 25 sequel novels. So for years there was just novels being produced in publications, books, and magazines, just building on this character of Tarzan. Now the story of Tarzan is this, is that he was... He was the son of a, of a wealthy British lord and lady who were marooned or they were left stranded on the Atlantic coast of Africa. And so they end up on the coast of Africa, kind of in the jungle. And when Tarzan was young, his mother died. It's like she got sick and died. And then his father, Tarzan's father, was killed by the leader of these, this group of apes that lived in the jungle where they were basically stranded. And so the leader of the apes killed the father, and Tarzan ends up being raised by that group of apes, and he's raised from, you know, that's the story, he's raised from, from pretty much small infant status and, you know, little boy, and he, 
He's, you know, his hair grows out. He, he, he swings from trees and all of that. Tarzan is his ape name, okay, just in case you're wondering. That was not his name given by his parents. His real name was John Clayton, okay, good British name, you know. But, me Tarzan, that's, that's his ape name, me Tarzan, you know. And 20 years after his family is kind of stranded on this island, another family, this American um, family, this party of Americans is also left stranded on the same coast. And it's at that point that he meets the love of his life. What's her name? You know, Jane, right? So, Jane. So here's a picture of the handsome Tarzan and Jane from the early book covers of Tarzan of the Apes. You know, look at Tarzan there, you know. <laughs> and Lady Jane. Now, now, most of us were introduced to Tarzan, probably most of us in this room were introduced to this through uh, the Disney story. Not everybody, but I know many. This is like, uh, you know, Tarzan, Disney's Tarzan was kind of like, that was the movie. It, I think it was released in the... It was about 20 years ago, so in the, in the mid-90s. And this has been kind of a... It's a fun movie. I mean, who here has seen Tarzan, the Disney version of Tarzan? A lot of people have probably seen it. And if, if you've had kids running around, grandkids, this is, this is kind of a hit for kids. And so this has actually been one of my favorite stops at Disneyland. And I've been at different points through the years going to Disneyland. I love the Tarzan treehouse because... You want to know why? Because... There's no lines. <laughs> There's never a line. You walk right in and just take your time. You go through the stations and you, you hear the music and you see the scenes from the Disney Tarzan. But honestly, when I think of Tarzan, uh, you know, it kind of gets me thinking about rocking some of those Phil Collins jams, you know. So we got one for you here. This will bring back some memories, you know. Here it is. Some of you know this song, right? Yeah, you do. Me and the guys at work, well, me and one guy at work this week, we were rocking this jam. I love this song, but anyway, let's cut it. There's other songs that are, you can cut it there. There's like that. You'll be in my heart song. You know, there's like the slow jam and then the... No, anyway, Phil Collins, you know, he, he made a lot of songs famous from this movie Tarzan. And now the latest Tarzan, there's a, it's building on the, this storyline of Tarzan from that original author. But the latest Tarzan is called The Legend of Tarzan. And I, I got to see this last night. I took my two sons and I saw it. I watched it yesterday at the Galaxy Theater, which is up here in Mission Grove. And first time being at that theater, that was probably my, might have been the best movie experience I've ever had. I mean, I don't often say this, but this was pretty amazing. Because you get in, the, well first they guide you in from the front. Oh, you know, here, can we have your tickets? And they walk you down the hall, take you to your seats. Like pre-purchased seats, basically, at that theater. And so, pre-purchased seats, and then they show you how your seat operates. So you can just, and you total full recline, you can get like the sleep number kind of or not the sleep number but the adjustable bed experience and you're just like in the perfect position nice plush seat so really comfortable and uh and normally you put me in that position in a movie i'm out (laughs) but the movie was good enough it really kept me awake i really enjoyed the movie and now here's what's going on in this movie 
Tarzan, it's been years since the man that everyone knew as Tarzan left the jungle of Africa and he began to live a more civilized life. Okay, so he's, he's with Jane and Jane is, you know, they've formed a life together and he's a, he's a gentleman now. And what's happened is, now, but everybody knows about Tarzan. He's this famous guy. The guy that was raised in the jungle. So people in Africa know of him. People where he's living know of him. He's this lord now. And he's been invited back to the Congo to serve as a trade emissary of parliament. And he is unaware that he's a pawn in really a deadly convergence of greed and revenge. And it's all masterminded by this Belgian captain. And his name is Captain Leon Rom. And he's played by this real, like, a good villain. They casted this this actor for the villain really well. So I want to show you the, the trailer. So take a look at this trailer. The jungle consumes everything. It preys on the old, the sick, the wounded. on the weak. They're never strong. He is no normal man. He was thought to be an evil spirit. A ghost in the trees. No man ever started with us. that little I can't do it but the, sounds like an ape that's Tarzan <laughs> anyway he, uh, he he is he's manipulated to go back into the jungle and so there's this captain who has a self-serving plan and Tarzan is his tool to accomplish what the, this captain really wants you'll have to go watch the movie to you know to see the full rumble in the jungle but it's 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 pretty exciting so uh Manipulation, it makes for some of the most suspenseful movies that we watch. I mean, sometimes you start to really like a character. It really draws you in. They build trust with you on the screen. And then all of a sudden, they double-cross the good guy. And they start manipulating. And that manipulation is often the twist in many of the best movies. You know, because you get drawn in. And then all of a sudden, oh, no, I didn't see that coming. Oh, no, no. And you you feel... you. You like it, but you don't like it. It makes for a great movie, you know, manipulation. But in real life, it's a lose-lose. When we start manipulating people, it's a lose for us, it's a lose for them. And so, nobody likes being double-crossed and manipulated. We, we feel used and betrayed. So, manipulation has some interesting definitions. Look at this word, what it means. 
In dictionary, if you look it up, here's, here's what you get. To treat or to operate with or as if with the hands or by mechanical means, especially in a skillful manner. When I read this definition, what I think of is a chiropractor. And there's this pushing and pulling and adjusting the body. There's this twisting, this applying pressure. My cousin who is wrapping up her doctoral studies to be a physical therapist, she learned you know, some chiropractic adjustments and different things, and they call that manipulations. And so when they, you know, twist your body and pop your back, she says this, they, they learn that as manipulations. And, and so this it's an interesting definition. The pulling, the pushing, the twisting, that's a form of manipulation. Second definition, to manage or utilize skillfully, to control or play upon by artful, unfair, or insidious means, especially to one's own advantage. And this third definition, to change by artful or unfair means so as to serve one's purpose. So there's this self-serving. Now look at how manipulation can be just, it's defined as artful. Manipulation is artful. It can be creative, it can be slick, it can be intentional, and sadly, manipulation isn't difficult for us to pull off. It's not that difficult. You may not be a master manipulator, but pretty early on in life, we figure this out, don't we? We figure out how to pull the strings and how to apply pressure and how to twist and how to, how to do this, how to control artfully other people. Sadly, it's just, it's, it's easy for us to default to this. Now, have you ever been out to dinner and asked someone if they liked what they were eating? Only because you really wanted to bite. <laughs> you know, we could say, hey, could I taste that? Instead we say, you like that? Now that seems like a low form and a goofy example, but it is manipulation in a cer- on a certain level. Now why do we do that? Why do we manipulate? We manipulate because we have some goals, we have some desires that we really want to happen now. We have some things that we really want to happen right now, and we don't want to use other people to help us get what we want, but we're willing to use other people if it leads to us accomplishing our goal. And so, our behavior, we don't just do things haphazardly. Our behavior, all of our behavior in life, flows from our heart. But the problem is that all of our hearts, according to the Bible, are sick and twisted. That sounds like, oh, that's, that was, that hurt. And that sounds dark and, well, but that's what the Bible teaches about the human heart. The Bible says the heart is sick and twisted. Look at this verse, Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Now, when it says the heart is deceitful, the word in Hebrew, deceitful, it's, it's a word that means twisted or it means bumpy. It's like a path that people would use that is twisted, it's not straight, it's not steady, it's got a lot of uh, uneven terrain, it's bumpy, it's twisted. So what it can do is that kind of path can trip people up. A character in the Bible, his name is Jacob. He was the deceiver in the Bible, we learn. And this word, he was given this name. The Hebrew name Yaakov is Jacob. It, It means deceitful. Twisted, bumpy, unstable. It's uh, it, there's this 
there's this twisted intention going on. And when we read Jacob's story, we read about Jacob, we think, oh man, he was rotten. And he was a useful guy to God. I mean, God used Jacob and his sons, the people of Israel, his twelve sons. So, but we read this story and we think, wow, that was really, that was really tricky. But that, that deceit is in my heart. That deceit is in your heart. That's the heart. The heart is deceitful first. And then he says, and desperately sick. The word in Hebrew there for desperately sick, it means it is so sick, it is in such poor health, it's beyond a cure. It's beyond a cure. It can't be repaired. So Jeremiah says, who can understand this thing? What's going on really in our heart? Now let's use this diagram from one of my friends, Pastor Harold Bullock. He, he, he describes the heart in this way. He says that, and, and really this is from the scripture, there's these good and bad desires in our heart. We have both positive and negative desires. We're a mixed bag. Ever since the fall of man, all of us are a mixed bag. We've got good, noble things, and we've got bad, deceitful, evil things going on in our heart. There's this wrestling match going on. Well, then we filter those desires, the good and bad desires, through two things. We filter those through our perspective and our values. Our perspective is the way that we view life. It's, it's how you and I think life works. We all have a perspective on life. And so we filter... Th- our desires through the way we think life really works, and then our values. The ranking, the value ranking that we assign to everything. You know, we have, we want status, we want possessions, we want uh, happiness, we want goals, fun, family, there's these things. And we, we assign this is number one, this is number two, this is number three. So our hearts, you know, basically, all of our desires are filtered through the perspective and values, and out of those things comes our behavior. So, if you understand this about the human heart, what this means is this. We never manipulate accidentally. We never manipulate unintentionally. Don't think, oh, I just, I didn't mean to do that, or I, I don't know how that happened. Well, there's a reason. There's a perspective that we're operating from and values that we hold to. And so we have some views and some values that set up our behavior. My perspective might be that people exist to meet my needs. My perspective might be that I deserve to be served by others. My values might be comfort, convenience, pleasure, possession, security. And, and so we have these things that we're wrestling with in our heart. Out of all this comes our behavior, the way that we treat people, and sometimes the way that we manipulate. Here are some of the ways that we do manipulate. You see these on your listening guide. The first one is, we can make people feel guilty. You know, people do all sorts of things. They are willing to do all sorts of things if they feel really guilty. You can get people to do all sorts of things if you can make them feel really guilty. And so have you ever prolonged a hurt? Someone hurts you, but you really nurse that hurt and they try to clear it up with you, but you prolong the hurt and you prolong the hurt and you want them to feel really guilty because you want them to do something in return. You want them to... There's some need that you still have that you're hoping to, to gain from this. So we prolong the hurt. Well, over time, when we start making people feel guilty, that form of manipulation, it makes our relationships quite shallow. Another way is, is, is that we hint around things instead of speaking directly. This is a form of manipulation in the way that we communicate. We hint around things instead of speaking directly. Like, like that comment, hey, how, how, how is... How's that steak taste? How's that bone in ribeye here at this restaurant? Rather than, 
Hey, can you cut me off a little bite of that? <laughs> we, we hint around the issue. Or maybe you're having a really rough day. We all have one. We all have them. And you wear it on your face. You're having a rough day, you wear it on your face, and you drop little verbal hints or nonverbal cues, but you're not addressing directly what's going on with you. People have to guess and wonder and duck and dive through all the nonverbal and verbal things. Whoa, something's going on. I'm not sure if what they're saying is what they really are feeling. And, and I'm not really sure what's going on here because there's all this hinting around instead of speaking directly about what's going on and what we really mean. And so what happens over time, people just, they don't know what we really mean. They don't know what we really are experiencing in life. They don't really know us. Or, another way we manipulate is we have a hidden agenda to meet our expectations. And so there's this secret plan that we can begin to concoct and we start taking small steps to position ourselves or others. And people in our lives, when this happens to us, people can begin, we have to be careful, because people can begin to build trust slowly over time in order to get us in a position where they can manipulate us. And then we think, oh, how could they? I, I, I thought I knew them, or I, I don't understand how this happened. And we feel conflicted. We don't often realize when we're caught in a manipulative web. Here's a fourth way that we manipulate. We, we can strategize to see how people can meet our needs. We can, this, can, this gets dark. This gets twisted. It gets very damaging. Now, all of this combined, if you look at this list, all of this is the art of manipulation. This is the art of manipulation. And whenever these things happen, when, pe- when you start making people feel guilty, they'll avoid you. When you start saying things in an indirect way, people can't trust your word. When you start having a hidden agenda with people, it makes people unsure around you. Whenever we start manipulating and strategizing, it pushes people away. It causes people to avoid us. Now, relationships is an area where manipulation often occurs. It can happen in other arenas of life, but relationships is is an arena where we most often see and experience manipulation. It can happen in marriage, it can happen in parenting, it can happen in dating. When When I think back to the way that I dated when I was growing up in high school and college, when I think back to the way that I dated, it makes me cringe. It just makes me cringe. And I can think of some Dating relationships where I was clearly manipulating the other person. And I can think of other times where I was the one being used and manipulated. And part of, part of my story of how I got serious with Christ and how I became a Christian and committed my life to Him is that one night, I remember being so fed up with myself for how I dated. And it was this area that God used ultimately to convince me that I could not do life on my own apart from His help. And that I was trying to run my life and it was, I was making a mess of things. I was hurting people, causing damage. And I saw how far off track I could finally see, wow, this is really who you are and this is what you do. And I, I could see how I was devaluing other people and, and I wanted, I just wanted to change. And I kind of was like, God, if you'll change me, I, I, God gave me hope that I could change. God restored hope that I, I could be a different person. And many people feel that, we feel that, struggle and tension. Maybe that's what God used in your life to get a hold of your heart as well. But so often we think that people 
can fill the emptiness and the holes in our lives. But people do not have that kind of power. No person on earth has the ability to fill your emptiness. People were not created to fulfill every need that you have. They weren't. And here's the key truth. This is in your listening guide. Only God can meet my deep felt needs. Don't miss this in life. Only God can meet my deep felt needs. We were all made to need certain things. We all long for meaning and purpose, for stability. These needs are not bad. Actually, they reflect the way that God has made us. The the key, though, is shifting from placing our fulfillment in life on another person. We have to shift away from that because no other human can meet our deep needs. Only God can do that. I want to read from a psalm. This is Psalm 62, one of King David's psalms from the Bible. We don't exactly know the occasion that prompted David to write Psalm 62, but clearly he was facing some relational turmoil and manipulation. And David himself, if you know his story, he was quite the manipulator at points, if you know his story. He did some despicable things at points, and he was quite the manipulator. And then also, on, on the flip side of that, he was, he was manipulated by people very close to him. So he'd experienced both extremes of being a manipulator and being manipulated. And so he's getting in this psalm to the heart of this issue that only God can meet our needs. That God has a different power to meet our real needs. He's the only one that has a different kind of power to pull that off. And it's written like poetry, so when you read poetry, you've got to look for the meaning. And so it's, it's quite instructive if you follow the, the direction of this psalm. So let's look at it. Psalm 62, verse 1. It begins, For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. This, this word alone shows up a lot. Again, he says, verse 2, He alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. Now he's just describing where his help comes from. God alone is where all of my help comes from. God alone is where I turn. Just imagine a warrior and how a warrior would feel at ease in a fortress after battle. David, he rested in the Lord like a warrior would rest in the fortress after battle and just be kept safe. I mean, imagine you're, you're in, in the jungle in the movie Tarzan and you see this safe house and you know, if I could just get from the jungle to that safe house to that fortress I know that that house is the safest place to be right in there that's how David is describing his need for closeness with God he's like God alone is the only place I can go he's my fortress now verse 3 how long will all of you now here's man's typical approach this is where manipulation begins. This is our typical approach. How, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. How long are we going to do it this way? Now, what, what does that mean? How long? Can you go back to verse 3? What does that mean? Think about that picture. The picture here is like, I'm putting pressure... Or attacking people. Or I'm putting just pressure on people who have limitations. People can't hold us up. People are like a leaning fence. It looks like it might be stable, but it's not going to hold us up. People are not fortresses. People are not strong and immovable fortresses. People are like leaning fences. A tottering fence. Verse 4, he says, 
They only want to thrust him down from his high position. There's this hidden agenda. Now David begins to describe. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. This is strategizing going on. This is manipulating. David goes on, he's just describing deception and manipulation that he had experienced firsthand as people were taking advantage of him. And even worse, things that happened to him that he's not describing. There was worse things that happened to him. But instead of giving in to despair, David has hope. He has hope. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 like reiterates verses 1 and 2. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation, my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. And then he says, trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. And there's all these common themes that emerge about waiting on God. Not looking for someone else to deliver us, but waiting on God to deliver us. Not, not looking and waiting for people or putting pressure on people to, to carry us through, but waiting on God to do that. Or God is the refuge, the fortress, the rock. These themes are just showing up over and over. Showing God's stability and the might that God has. Then in verse 8, David gives this call to action. And the picture that he gives is he's calling people to pour out our heart on a mighty God who is a refuge when we need help. He's saying, this is an invitation. Pour out your heart on God. He's a mighty one who can give help. This is a word picture like pouring out a jug of water. But our tendency in life is to take our needs, our deep needs, and to spill them out to the people who are closest to us, and we can manipulate in this way. We can manipulate because we think we're not going to be taken care of unless so-and-so does what I need them to do for me right now. I'm having a bad day, or I'm having a bad season of my life, and I'm not going to be okay unless so-and-so fixes this problem, whether it's my spouse, my friend, the person I lean on, that that leaning fence, that tottering fence, whoever I choose at that point to pour out my struggles to, I need them to do something for me. And so David's saying, look, don't do that. Don't take your needs and concerns to other people and pour it out on them. Pour it out to God. God's not one that's going to crumble your request. He's not overwhelmed by your concerns. He's not overwhelmed by your life. You can't wear God down. But you can wear others down. There is a point where people get worn down in relating to us when we start giving or start using manipulation. And when we feel unsupported by people, we feel ripped off. We feel let down. Oh, they, they weren't there for me. But the truth is, they never had the power to fully support you in the first place. They just don't have the ability to pull it off. And here's what he says. He continues this on, verse 9. He says, here's what happens when we relate to other people. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate, they are a delusion. So what he's saying is, people. there's some people that seem to have it all together, but, but they're like a breath and a delusion. You think the good people are going to hold you up, but that's, that's a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. So what this means is, the expectation that a knight in shining armor is going to, be there for you and support you and can be completely counted on. David's saying, all people have struggles. All people have limitations. They're like but a breath. 
And then he says, put no trust in extortion. He starts turning a corner here. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Basically, we have limitations from, from weak people to strong people. Everyone here in this passage is compared to a breath, compared to the eternal God. And then verse 10, he's just describing how we run to, you know, materialism, but possessions, materialism, relationships, they're not enough. We still long for fulfillment. So then he concludes with these two verses, verses 11 and 12. David writes, Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. God, David just concludes with this emphasis of God's power and God's love. God is all-powerful. He has the ability to support me. He's the only one that can pull that off. And he has steadfast love. That word in Hebrew has to do with faithfulness. It's, it's where we get the word faithfulness. Totally reliable. It's counting on something. You, you're, you can step on something and it's firm. It's going to hold you up. That is how God is with us. He's powerful and he's faithful. And so there's this tension. With God, we're, we're interacting with one who is all-powerful and yet all-loving in the most personal way towards us. But then there's this other tension that comes when we look to God and God's provision. The tension is this, that God has not created us to just trust Him in isolation. He actually made us to be in relationships with other people. He wants us to be in relationships with others, which is why we're looking in this message series at relationship killers, because relationships are a part of life, but we need to know, how do I get rid of the many landmines that can blow up my relationships? However, the only way to really experience the health in relationships the way that God intends is to make this psalm a reality of how we live our lives. That there would be this major shift to believe this about God. To believe that God's power and love is what can really free us from manipulating those people around us. It's it's really recognizing I am secure in Him and I'm getting enough I'm satisfied in God. I don't have to manipulate and try to use people to get my needs met. God may use other people to meet your needs, to meet my needs, but I can't demand that from them. That's the issue with manipulation. We just can't demand that. To demand an expectation in a relationship is like pouring oil on a delicate flower in need of water. You're pouring oil on this flower. It lands heavy and it causes the plant to wither. That's exactly what happens in a relationship when we start expecting and putting demands on people as the relationship begins to dry up and wither. And God, He provides friendships and, and He uses others to meet needs that we have in our life, but I don't get to demand that they do what I want. I, I don't use them. We don't get to use people as pawns to get our agenda moved forward in life. And then, when I'm not getting what I need in life, when you're not getting what you need in life from others, the, the reflex to learn is to do what David did. To turn to God and say, God, I trust you with the timing. I trust you with the refreshment. I trust you that you'll provide the resources and the help to sustain me. I trust you day in and day out. And doing that can prevent us from really manipulating and pushing putting pressure in an, in an unneeded way. So, so some final thoughts here. How, how to move from manipulation to dependence on God. First, turn to God first for help. We all need help in life, but turn first to God. So maybe reread Psalm 62 this week and note how much our attention needs to turn to God and wait for His provision. Wherever you go first, 
with your needs is indicative of your source of strength. Wherever you turn first for your needs is indicative of your source of strength. If a need comes up and your first reflex, the pattern is people, then you're trusting too much in, in them. And it's like a leaning wall. It won't be able to hold you up. They will not be able to hold you up through the years of your life. And so turn to God for a second. Ask God to show you any manipulative strategies. We've looked at a bunch of different strategies. Ask God this week. God, show me. This is the kind of message which demands us to be really honest with our strategies and and goals. And the fact that we've identified any of these strategies should cause concern. So here's some questions to think through. Just some questions. Am I obligating anyone to meet an expectation through guilt currently or through pressure? Here's another question to ask. Am I playing games with anyone by not being honest with my intentions? Game playing is kind of just another way of saying manipulating. Third, am I disappointed with how someone is treating me and finding myself bitter towards them? Disappointment is not bad in in and of itself, but it can show us that we're placing too much trust and hope in other people. We feel like, have they disappointed me again? Again, we're leaning too heavily on the wrong person. And then, Finally, this last point in here, moving from manipulation to dependence, appreciating the people God has placed in your life. God's put some precious people in your life. Appreciate them. Whenever we appreciate people and we encourage people, that's a choice. It's a choice for us to look at a person and at their needs rather than thinking, what can they do for me? But it's a choice. We have to be intentional to think about how, how can I help them with their needs, with their goals. And so maybe there's someone in your life right now that you need to encourage and thank them for what they do. The reality is this. Appreciation diminishes our our right to demand on others. When we start building a pattern of appreciation, we, we, we can begin to then take the pressure off of the demands that, that follow. People who are fully satisfied with God, which is what David's describing. He's just like, God, you alone, only you, you're my fortress, you're my rock, you're my, you're my refuge, you alone, God, are where I'm leaning. You'll support me. You'll hold me up. People who have that kind of faith have healthy relationships. They have healthy relationships. And imagine, imagine the kind of families that we would have if we turned to God first. Imagine the kind of friendships we could have, the refreshment we could experience if we turned to God first. Imagine the church, the type of church we could be if we reached out to other people by showing a genuine love and pointing people to God without strings attached, without manipulation, imagine that type of healthy relational environment. That's really life-giving. That's really refreshing. There's some next steps that you can see at the bottom of your listening guide. Maybe just highlight these three. You can pull all three of them up. Turn to God first for help in blank. And if there's something specific that you're turning to people, what, what is it that you need to turn to God first? Maybe there's a pattern to identify. And second, express appreciation to someone specific this week. And then finally, just we left it, it, it wide open. So maybe there's something God's pointing out. Maybe you just sense, you know, I need to get alone with God this week and try to identify the specific manipulative strategies. Maybe God's going to prompt some confession of sin or a clearing up of a relationship. Whatever God says to you, I just encourage you, take that step in obedience to Him. So let's pray together. Father, thank You again for this time and for Your help, Lord, as we look to You and Your Word. I pray that You give us the power and strength to live differently despite the struggles we find in our heart, despite the pull towards selfishness and, and 
Lord, would you help us to live and relate in a way that really pleases you and puts others' interests ahead of our own, Lord. Would you help us to lean on you, God? That you would be alone, the only one that we fully rely on. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.